This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to The Property Show on The Morning Run and I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, we continue our conversation with Prakash Lungani, a macroeconomist at the International Monetary Fund, on how global property prices have been on the rise and what role governments can play to cool down property prices. You know, we have been seeing, you know, house prices skyrocket across the world. And when I was observing IMF's reports, you know, many of your country reports you very much flag this concern about the hot property market that's taking place everywhere, right? Especially, as you said, in these Anglo-Saxon countries. Can I get your perspective? Is there a prescription to address issues of affordability? You've already alluded to it in the last conversation we had, which was interest rates and also addressing the demand-supply dynamics there. What are the other actions that you think governments can do to perhaps cool down or perhaps create a more affordable housing market? Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, countries have used uh, kind of a mix of tools. You know, no, no, no country relies on just one, one policy tool. Um, one set of policies has a rather daunting name, but it's called macroprudential policies. But these are basically policies that try to you know, cool down uh, the amount of lending uh, that is happening in the real estate market. So, you know, this could happen because the lenders, you know, the banks uh, or the mortgage companies are getting a little too lax about standards. They're not checking whether people are really qualified and are just giving out loans as has happened before the, the housing crisis in the United States uh, a decade or so ago. Or it could just happen that borrowers, you know, the buyers of houses feel like, oh, yes, house prices are going up, but they're going to keep going up. I'm going to miss out. So this kind of fear of missing out can also lead buyers to say, well, I'm just going to buy and, you know, I'm going to borrow more than I may truly uh, be able to afford. So, you know, regardless of whether it's from the borrowing side or the lending side, countries often end up in a situation where the mortgage credit growth is kind of excessive and the regulators have to keep an eye on this and you know, try to figure out when to kind of take the fizz or the froth out of these markets. So the macroprudential tools are basically you know, policy levers that you can adjust to limit the amount of borrowing that can be done for, for buying a house. So uh, the, many countries have used that. In fact, these things became very popular in uh, Asian countries, mm-hmm. Thailand and elsewhere, about a decade or 15 years ago. And in some sense, it's Asia that has led the way in uh, implementing and fine-tuning these policies. So I don't know how old your listeners are, but I think perhaps a decade or so ago, there was a very famous video coming from Korea called Gangnam Style. Yeah, I think most of us know that. Go ahead. Yeah. So Okay. So what I didn't know is that Gangnam is actually a suburb of Seoul, the capital city, where house prices were completely, were getting quite out of control. And so the Korean uh, policymakers, the financial regulators kind of targeted this Gangnam province. Uh, It's a suburb and they, you know, used these macro prudential tools, as I call them, limit the amount of borrowing that was going uh, going on. So this is one of the main sort of set of tools that financial regulators are using. I want to build on this Gangnam style because we see many regions and sub 
locales like Singapore, you know, and even some parts of London where, you know, the accusation sometimes is that foreign investors, that foreign buyers inflate property prices in many of these specific locations, which then makes it untenable. And so the question in my mind is, especially now is as we were having a conversation about the distortion of pricings and about how some markets are more tepid versus others which are growing at an astronomical rate pace, right? There's a huge opportunity to kind of arbitrage and move between these different markets. Do you think there's any value in trying to restrict or even put caps to foreign investment for properties, you know, to kind of stop this inflation of property in these very hotspot areas then? I think governments should have the sovereign right to decide what goals they have for their societies and, you know, take the steps that are needed to achieve those goals. So housing affordability is a perfectly, uh, is, a, is a completely valid uh, goal for a government to have. I mean, it's, you know, sh- housing is one of the basic necessities of life. You know, we say food, clothing, shelter, everyone needs shelter. So, you know, I think there's no <clears throat> shame in a government declaring that they can, they care about housing affordability and want to make it uh, a goal to, uh, to have mostly middle class people achieve it. You know, I think the rich find a way and uh, for poor, they may have other means of support. But it's, you know, if the middle class is getting priced out of their own homes, I think it's uh, some, it's something that that governments uh, should care about. And if it if it is the case that foreigners are driving a big part of that increase in house prices, you know, then I think it's a legitimate tool for actions from, from governments to try to limit uh, that source of, of house increase. So the, the problem is that it's not easy to establish sort of in real time what is the role that foreign investors are playing. If you live in particular towns and you know them well, you can easily see anecdotal evidence of foreign influence. All of us in our neighborhoods that we know well can walk past some property which you could say, oh, this has been vacant for three years. So we, I don't even know who owns it. And maybe there's some you know foreign money that is just parked there as safety or speculation or whatever. So all of us are aware of anecdotal evidence that foreign money is driving prices here, there. You know, in London, you know, famously, the role of Russian oligarchs is is, is quite well established. Hence London grad. So, what's that? Hence London grad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so the IMF actually did a sort of fairly careful uh, study, five of such markets. Um, so it was Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, Singapore, and New Zealand. They tried to look at the role that foreign investors were playing. So these are all five, these are five economies that had big increases in house prices. They feared that there was a role of foreign investors. But at the same time, these are economies that want to stay open and they want to keep a reputation for being open to foreigners. But nevertheless, in each of these five economies, these governments placed some restrictions on on the entry of uh, foreign money into the real estate uh, sector. And so the IMF kind of did an investigation and it's very, as I said, difficult to establish, but the best of the IMF's judgment. In three of these cases, Australia, Hong Kong, and Singapore, they felt that foreign money was indeed playing a role in boosting house prices. And so they said that, you know, these steps are justified, but, you know, to maintain your reputation for openness, you should try to see if you can find some other means to control house prices rather than put the the burden on on foreign capital. But in the other two, um, New Zealand uh, and Canada, they said, well, we we don't think that, I mean, we agree that your house prices are going up, but 
doesn't seem that was foreign money that was playing a role. And so they said, well, your measures really don't seem justified to us. Yeah, because I think what you said just now is that I think IMF was quite clear in its recommendations that, look, you wouldn't be recommending any imposition of foreign capital into the markets and that you were advocating for alternative other solutions to drive and improve affordability in the housing markets for these jurisdictions. I wonder in your mind, what could be those alternatives? What kind of actions can we do to support affordability while at the same time not restrict foreign capital into the markets? Yeah, so I think more targeted steps. You know, so if you if your concern is really not so much uh, the middle class, but say lower middle income or low income people, then you can use more targeted measures, you know, trying to have more multifamily housing in, in suburbs where there isn't uh, so much. So in the suburb that I live in, in the in the United States, in Washington, there are so many restrictions on multifamily housing. So people outside of a rich bracket don't really have the means to come into our neighborhood and, and find a way to live. And this happens in many, many suburbs where low income or lower middle income people are just basically blocked from entering many neighborhoods because of these regulations on multifamily housing. So I think relaxing those regulations, you know, allowing for more mixed use uh, type housing is a way in which you can make housing affordable without necessarily just targeting the kind of high-end properties where foreigners tend to go. So to me, it's it's a question of politicians trying to say that they are trying to fix the problem. You know, it's politically popular mm. to say, oh, foreigners are making our house prices go up and look, we are doing something against it. Now, as I said, there are indeed cases where this has happened. So, you know, I gave you the three examples of you know, Australia, Hong Kong and Singapore, where the IMF also agrees that this is happening. So so there, I think you have some justification for, for having these kinds of uh, restrictions in place. But elsewhere, I think you want to do a more targeted approach and see if it's really kind of middle class and lower middle yep. class people, you want to really relax the supply constraints that are really keeping housing and multifamily housing from expanding. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Prakash Lungani. He's a macroeconomist at the International Monetary Fund as we dissect the development of global property prices. So when I listen to you and the conversation you are alluding to in terms of how we drive affordability is like government still has the tool of policy making, of regulatory frameworks, of changing the process to how we allow people into the neighborhoods. That is still a very much critical tool that the government can play. But I want to get your perspective. Do you think government should play a facilitator role or even get into the business of building homes or should it just entirely be reliant on private? developers and simply just incentivize and shape policy to encourage private developers to build houses? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, the IMF doesn't have a view on this. My own personal view is to, for the government to sort of set the goals and then leave it to private enterprise to, to deliver. I think there can be some role for social housing for really the most vulnerable segments of society. But if we allow supply to come in, I think developers have the incentives and they have the means 
means to deliver the housing uh, far more efficiently. You know, the story of government supply of housing has not entirely been a successful one yeah. you know, around the globe. You know, here and there, of course, you have successes, but you know, you have as many failures, I think, as successes. And so, certainly in the U.S., all the many of the major attempts to provide government-provided housing have have not really paid off over time. It's just been very uh, difficult to integrate those housing developments into the broader community yeah. and it's they've been a source of problems so i think and i personally again this is not a something on which the imf takes a view my personal view would be to allow private sector to deliver on the goals that the government may have set on you know how many houses you need who should be occupying them in terms of the income levels of people and so on so i think there's immense scope well, one thing that i have lobbied for and not been very successful on this is you know i actually feel that in the emerging markets even in our very crowded cities there is room to go even higher you know to mm. for skyscrapers to go even higher into the sky because that to me is is a way of providing housing for people if you build them you know right where the jobs are where the city center is where the business centers are you know that's a way of cutting down on congestion it's a way of cutting down on commuting costs so as i said i've not been very uh, successful in this attempt but i i personally feel that even in very crowded cities in the emerging markets like uh, you know mumbai where i where i was born uh, i mean where i come from uh, you know there's so much room to go up really high in the sky and have people kind of work close by isn't it so isn't that, it ironic because you're right you know high rises are the preserve of the rich and the wealthy uh, lesser for the the lower income and low incomes yeah, tend exactly. to be in slums I mean, you know, and think, uh, grounded properties <laughs> yeah i mean why wouldn't you you know build a skyscraper for for normal people so that they can live close to where they work i mean it's uh, but as i said people are just so caught up in this image of you know congested emerging market cities that the moment i start talking about putting even more people there they say no 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 what what about the congestion but the congestion is happening because we don't have enough people staying right in the city center we Absolutely. have to send them out into the suburbs and we have to bring them into work we have to provide the infrastructure the congestion the environmental damage all that is coming because we settle them so far from their place of work you think they are comfortable Whereas with we... the congestion of the transportation but not the congestion of living in the residential properties <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so you know, uh, it's a so different form anyway, of congestion. Said, that's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but uh, I think it, it goes to the broad point that yeah, we can make housing affordable through many different supply channels. It doesn't all have to be, you know, what I call macro prudential tools are ways of regulating the demand. Mm. But if you increase supply, then you don't have to worry as much about the demand. If you expand supply, house prices will tend to come down. But Prakash. Perhaps one of the reasons why there's so much aversion to do this is the cost of construction of these yeah. high rises and the affordability of the materials that perhaps now the concern going forward is lesser about the demand side but that the supply of building materials the cost of construction the labor uh, costs are all rising substantially like particularly in Malaysia we are having a shortage of labor so that right. is driving prices out of the affordability range for many in the middle classes what do you think what do you think can the government do anything about that in the first place no i think you you bring up a very good point that is going to be i think a constraint with us 
in the near term. It certainly looks like it for the rest of this year and maybe going into next year. So, yeah, I think everywhere you've had a, an increase in, uh, in the prices of lumber and other construction materials. So, you know, I don't know how, how it is in Malaysia, but here, for instance, uh, you know, I think lumber prices have gone up two to three times. So, you know, that that has to have an impact on, on the price of, of housings. Um, so I, th- I think this is indeed a, a constraint. And sadly, I don't think you can do much about it other than, you know, relax sort of trade restrictions and so on that come in the way of, of uh, you know, having a, a, a kind of unified market where, where things can, can flow easily. I mean, many countries still have restrictions on exports of, of these uh, construction materials. The U.S., for instance, kind of restricts softwood lumber uh, imports from Canada. You know, it's, it's next door neighbor. <laughs> Both countries are free trade countries, but you know, still the U.S. maintains some restrictions on softwood lumber imports. So, so I think trade relaxation of trade restrictions can help the industry. Uh, can help the, the, the alleviate the supply shortages. But I, I think that this is a problem. I hope in the near term. So the kind of factors I was talking about, like building a high stall skyscraper and so on, they're actually, you know, the technology has improved so much over the last couple of decades that, you know, it's actually become so much cheaper to build these skyscrapers. The safety has gone up. And so many of the concerns that people used to have uh, are not valid anymore. But you're absolutely right that in the near term, we do have to worry about the fact that with the pandemic and now with the war in Ukraine, we've gone into a sort of a period of deglobalization. And I want to bring and, that up because yeah. as we come off from the Davos summit, there was so right. much talk about the role of globalization and how it's changing with regionalization, deglobalization, very much talked about. And I wonder what its broader implications are on the global property segment. We touched, you know, during this segment about how overseas property investors have been perhaps marginalized or even looked at as, from a negative standpoint. You see rising construction material coming through. Do you think further deglobalization will put more pressure on the property industry going forward? What do, what do, what does that how does this translate uh, in terms of global property prices and even the industry's health in the midterm long term if we still hit towards the path of greater deglobalization? So again, again, giving my personal view on this, I think globalization tends to go in cycles rather than trend in one direction or another for 30, 50 years. I think people have a tendency to look at the experience of the last two, three years and just project it linearly and say, well, now we're going to enter a period of profound deglobalization. But, you know, we've had interruptions to globalization before, uh, even more serious than what we have gone through in the last two or three years. And so these things go in cycles. I think there will be some developments that are actually good. I think people are thinking about the fact that you may be part of an integrated global supply chain, but you need to have some backup. Mm. So, you know, you, you can be really sourcing material from all over the world, and that can be your plan A, but you need to have a plan B where critical things that you need can be, you know, as they say, near-shored. Uh, just in case. Industry. Just in case. So I think every business is going to have that kind of thinking that you know, I, I'm going to hope things stay integrated, but I, what is my plan for business continuity if, if things get interrupted? So I think... I don't see a problem with that. I think that's good. You don't want to carry globalization too far either. Uh, I think you want to maintain a balance between globalization and the sovereign national interests. So I think we will get over this phase also. 
you know, it seems very dark now because we had the kind of US-China trade tensions and we had the pandemic. Now we have Ukraine. So it just seems like we've had a series of shocks in one direction. But, you know, I think we we can come out of this. There will be cycles where we will have an integrated world again. So I'm not too too much of a dismal scientist on, on this score. Mm. I think in the near term, as you allude, there will be some issues. I mean, um, if this all the factors that are leading to deglobalization, if they kind of trigger a recession, then, of course, that has implications for the housing market. Shock horror, you utter the R word, recession, (laughs) which many people, you know, shun. But to be fair, that seems to be a very likely reality uh, for many of us, uh, perhaps not in Malaysia in the immediate term, but globally, that's been talked a lot, quite a bit. The triple triple recession in the United States, Europe and China, perhaps even short-lived. Do you then think that global property prices will be very volatile in the near term, short term? What's the prognosis in the short term, you know, with with respect to trend, do we continue to see it tapering down, but that pathway towards tapering down will be very volatile? You know, as we were discussing before, I think, you know, policymakers are trying to engineer a soft landing of the economy as a whole. And that should mean that even housing sector should not have a hard landing. So I think our baseline scenario, certainly at the IMF, is still that, you know, policymakers are able to pull it off. We already discussed that when you have an increase in house prices, there will be some, I mean, sorry, when you have an increase in interest rates, there will be some moderation of house prices. So that is expected, but it doesn't have to be a sudden crash. And you know, one thing that you know people sort of don't know much about is the relationship between the business cycle, namely whether or not the economy is in a recession or a boom, and the housing sector is is quite quite complicated. It's not uh, necessarily that each time you go in a recession, the housing sector collapses. Mm. Uh, in fact, historically, only one in four recessions has been associated with a housing market crash. So. You know, it's not a one for one. It very much depends on the circumstances. And so I think there is hope for the kind of what policymakers are hoping will be the baseline scenario, namely, you know, they increase interest rates sort of in a gentle, perhaps even at times not so gentle fashion. But the impact on the economy is a soft landing and and the housing sector as well. So, you know, I I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but, you know, I think that has happened in the past. Uh, Whether or not it happens this time, I guess, wait and see. So I, I don't... I don't think there's anything that necessarily leads you to expect volatility. You you expect definitely a dampening because interest rates were so low for so long historically and clearly they are on their way up. Prakash, thank you so much. And fingers crossed uh, that we see... Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) That's all the time we have for today's Property Show. Thank you for being on the show, Prakash. I've been speaking to Prakash Lungani from the International Monetary Fund on the global housing market. I'm Philip C. signing off for The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.